0: Did you hear that, sir? No, I didn't. Who is it? Frankenstein? The Booger Man? It's the man in the bag, sir. I think he's alive. Ooh. Bad corpse. bed Stop scaring Smithies! Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Ear Read This, a podcast providing critical introductions to our favourite works of literature. I'm Ash, your host, and today I'm talking about Frankenstein by Mary Shelley. Originally published anonymously in 1818, the novel tells the story of Victor Frankenstein, an ambitious young scientist from Switzerland who succeeds in creating artificial life from inanimate matter. However, no sooner has Victor unfolded one of the deepest mysteries of creation, than he is sickened by what he has done and abandons it. The monster also flees and wanders the world like a new Adam. But after seeing what disgust he inspires in mankind, the creature swears revenge on his maker, and launches an attack on the remorse-stricken Victor and his family. Subtitled A Modern Prometheus, Frankenstein has itself entered our common mythology, becoming a universally recognised name, a metaphor for haywire creation, a story which, as we will see, has proven to be made from eternally pliable clay, accommodating an endless range of readings and adaptations. Interpretations of Frankenstein multiply with such virility that Fred Botting has commented that the novel is a product of criticism, not a work of literature. Now, as well as exploring some of the readings Frankenstein has fathered, we'll look at the novel's famous conception, its curious publication history, and then try to dissect the monster into some of its constituent parts, its scientific, philosophical and romantic context, and how the novel fuses themes of physical birth and artistic creation to comment on the corrupting power of fiction. For, as Peter Brooks has said, storytelling in Frankenstein is far from an innocent act. Narratives have designs on the narratees that must be unravelled. And of course, we will also be talking about the extraordinary author of this iconic novel, only a teenager when she composed her story, who despite her fame remains to this day mysterious. As Fiona Sampson has said, just as Frankenstein gets reinvented every couple of decades, so does Mary Shelley. To discuss Frankenstein, I am delighted to be joined today by Emily Ingram, a theatre practitioner, director, writer and performer who is currently working on a play based on Shelley's life. Emily has recently served as prop master for The Show Must Go Online and is the artistic director of Some Kind of Theatre here in Edinburgh. Some Kind of Theatre specialise in plays inspired by classic works of literature and their most recent production is of William Shakespeare's Tragical History of Frankenstein – written by Ian Desher. To hear more about Emily's work, tune in again tomorrow for an extended interview. And in the meantime, you can find links to Some Kind of Theatre and Emily's Twitter page in the episode description box below. Now, to spark things off, I began our conversation by asking Emily a little bit about where Mary Shelley was when she began to write Frankenstein.
1: So Frankenstein was written by Mary Shelley, or Mary Godwin, as she was then when she was in her late teens, there's uh, this quote from Byron that I'm going to absolutely butcher for you, where he says, how could a girl of 19, not yet even 19, write such a thing? And she was writing it in the year without summer. And there has been a, a volcano eruption and essentially the skies of Europe were covered in this layer of ash. It was very dark. The weather was pretty abysmal. And Shelley... Godwin, uh, had been traveling with Percy Shelley and her stepsister uh, Claire Claremont around Europe, having run away from the family home from William Godwin, uh, Mary Godwin's father's home. They hold up uh, in a villa just down the road from uh, Villa Diodati, where Lord Byron and John uh, Polidori were staying. Entirely entirely been invited. It, it's a little bit debatable, but Claire Claremont um, was having an affair with Byron. She would kind of leveraged the fact that she knew Mary to pique his interest and she was having an affair with him. And well, pretty much gone, yeah, we're totally invited. We should go hang out with Lord Byron. I'm, I'm dramatizing it, but that's, that's essentially what happened. So they rock up. Byron's like, oh, great. You guys are here. That's wonderful. And all of these figures were... Super controversial at the time. Byron, obviously, you know, b- mad, bad, and dangerous to know, as the quote goes. Shelley himself, also a hugely controversial figure um, because he'd come out as an atheist, which was a huge thing to declare oneself as at the time. By running away with him, Mary Godwin had also become a hugely controversial figure. They had kids together despite being unwed, which was a huge deal at the time. Claire Claremont was literally tied up in the affairs of Lord Byron, so, was also this controversial figure. And John Polidori was sitting there writing down pretty much every conversation everyone was having and selling it off to gossip columns unbeknownst to the rest of them, which is wild. Meanwhile, there's a hotel across the lake from them where tourists could pay to look down a telescope at their villa to see if anything, um, you know, anything sort of sexy or controversial was happening. And this hotel made a killing doing that. So they're holed up in this villa. The weather's foul. The only real entertainment they have is to go for slightly boring walks around the same stretch of countryside around the villa. Is this sounding familiar? Is this sounding like 2020 to you? And eventually they get so bored that Byron famously goes, we're each going to write a ghost story. And the vampire by John Polidori comes out of that. Um, A few pieces by um, Byron and Shelley respectively are thought to have come out of that. And Frankenstein comes from Mary.
0: I had no idea of the extent of the the sort of attention that was that was on them all. I, I was obviously I, I was I was aware of the ghost story writing challenge, the prompt from Byron, but I had no idea that telescopes and the the intensity of the sort of gossipy side of this.
1: And essentially, there was this whole industry because the tourism industry was a bit rubbish in the year without summer because the weather was rubbish. <laughs> This hotel was cashing in on it, and actually, the tourism industry of that tiny part of of, of Geneva or Lake Geneva just suddenly relied on the Shelleys and Claire Claremont and Byron and Pol- Polidori just for a couple of months, which is incredible. Um, now, the way Mary tells it in the preface to the later edition of Frankenstein is that she was she'd been sleeping badly, um, perhaps because she had a terrible time. Um, having been pregnant with her second child and was still recovering from that. She, she tells us that she was sleeping terribly and she had this almost waking vision or, or nightmare where she sees Victor Frankenstein, that moment of, the, of his creature being created.
0: John Polyadori tells us that the group by Lake Geneva had been reading from a French translation of German ghost stories with the spectacular title Phantasmagoriana. Shelley was already a keen reader of Gothic fiction, which had gained prominence in the 1790s through authors such as Anne Radcliffe and William Beckford, who had followed in the footsteps of Horace Walpole, generally credited with the first Gothic story, The Castle of Otranto. Gothic romances in the late 18th and early 19th century were both phenomenally popular and widely denounced as immoral. Traditionalist critics, reeling from the sudden democratisation of literature, expressed anxieties that such fiction would have a corrupting influence, particularly on female readers. In 1795, a critic writing in the periodical The Sylph commented that "...the depravity is universal. I have actually seen mothers crying for the imaginary distress of a heroine while their children were crying for bread." What such critics plainly feared was that the social function of women would be undermined. Potential mothers were being lost to a genre that was itself reproducing at breakneck speed. For as Thomas Matthäus has written, gothic fiction propagated its species with unequalled fecundity. Strange as it sounds to modern ears, practitioners of gothic fiction were known at the time as terrorist writers – Not for their disruptive effects on society, but their genre's ambition to evoke primal emotions in their readership. Frankenstein itself would be seen as deeply transgressive, even with delicious irony being rejected by one of its own gothic forefathers, William Beckford, who wrote in his personal copy of the novel that it was "...perhaps the foulest toadstool that has yet sprung up from the reeking dunghill of the present times." To the eternal annoyance of Shelley scholars, her journals covering the period of Frankenstein's conception are missing, but earlier entries contain hints of the novel to come. As Richard Holmes tells us, when Mary eloped with Shelley to France and Switzerland in 1814, their shared journal indicates that they were already discussing notions of creating artificial life, and as they returned penniless, they sailed beneath a lowering schloss known as Castle Frankenstein. The formation of castles in the air was how Shelley described her own imaginative process. And long before that desolate year without summer, she had a creative affinity with blank and dreary landscapes, such as those on the shores of the Tay near Dundee, which she recalled visiting in her youth. They were the eerie of freedom, she said, the pleasant region where, unheeded, I could commune with the creatures of my fancy. This comes in her mischievously worded preface to the 1831 edition of Frankenstein, her description of Dundee not only recalling the desert mountains and dreary glaciers that become the refuge of Frankenstein's creature, but also the barren Orkney rock that Victor chooses for the scene of creating a female companion for his monster. Scenic poverty is shown throughout Frankenstein to have an animating effect on the imagination, In her preface, Shelley goes on to recount how the dismal surroundings at Lake Geneva affected her. I did not sleep, nor could I be said to think. My imagination, unbidden, possessed and guided me, gifting the successive images that arose in my mind with a vividness far beyond the usual bounds of reverie. I saw, with shut eyes but acute mental vision, I saw the pale student of unhallowed arts kneeling beside the thing he had put together. I saw the hideous phantasm of a man stretched out and then, on the working of some powerful engine, show signs of life and stir with an uneasy, half-vital motion.
1: A really cool and dramatic story. I question whether it's true, and I I don't know, and I, I know speculating on these things is a little bit daft because we're 200 years on, how could we possibly know? But I wonder whether... Claiming, oh, it came to me in a dream was an attempt by Mary to distance herself from what became quite a controversial novel. And obviously there's, there's a huge history of writers claiming things came to them in the dream in order to excuse themselves. Um, you know, in, in Chaucer's era, you've got the author's apology at the start of things was like, a muse came down to me and told me this. It's not me, Any any anything that's controversial, totally on the muse. And I, I think really Shelley's the same, you know, in the preface to the second edition, she um, describes herself as having only made a transcript of what she, in, um, of what this vision gave her. And again, I, I find that really difficult to believe. It it may be true, but she was an incredibly clever woman. She was incredibly well versed in literature. She was incredibly well versed in the scientific theories of her time. And so much of Frankenstein ties together those scientific ideas at the time. I I think it's rubbish. I think it's an attempt to distance. And I think that although it's a wonderfully dramatic story, when I hear it retold that, oh, it came to her in a dream, it actually winds me up a bit because I think it undermines, and, and Shelley herself undermines her greatness as an author by, by that. But we will never know. Maybe she had this vision. Maybe... She was just writing a really cool novel um, as a result of that prompt by Lord Byron. But essentially, those, those are the facts of Frankenstein's creation. She was holed up in this villa. The weather was rubbish. She got bored of going for the same walk around the block. Relatable content. And maybe she had a vision, or maybe she just sat down and wrote one of the most influ- influential novels in the Western canon.
0: On New Year's Day, 1818, the first edition of Frankenstein was published. All 500 copies would sell out, making the not-yet-publicly-credited author more commercially successful than her famous husband. Contemporary reviewers typically recoiled from the novel, John Croker saying in the quarterly review that our taste and our judgement alike revolt at this kind of writing, before going on to wonder whether the head or the heart of the author was the most diseased. A critic for the Edinburgh magazine also found it hard to see why it should have been written, and highlighted the novel's blasphemy. The expression creator, applied to a mere human being, gives us the same sort of shock as the phrase, The Man Almighty. Frankenstein would continue to provoke Shudders for decades to come. In his introduction to the Rutledge edition in 1886, Hugh Reginald Hawes says, I issue Frankenstein with some degree of hesitation. The subject is somewhat revolting, the treatment of it somewhat hideous. The conception is powerful, but the execution very unequal. Upon the novel's first release, one notably moderate critic was Walter Scott, who praised the novel's plain and forcible English, an ability to excite new reflections and untried sources of emotion. On the other hand, Scott found the self-education of the monster improbable and overstrained, thus inaugurating a rich tradition of readers who will accept the electrical reanimation of dead bodies but draw the line at such individuals reading Paradise Lost. Scott was under the impression that Frankenstein was written by Percy Shelley, an impression perhaps encouraged by the novel's inclusion of lines from Percy Shelley's poem Mutability, which prompted Scott to comment that the author possesses the same facility in expressing himself in verse as in prose. When Richard Brinsley Peake's play Presumption, based on the novel, premiered in 1823, the novel's notoriety was milked for all it was worth in the advertising. Do not go to the opera house to see the monstrous drama founded on the improper work called Frankenstein. Do not take your wives, do not take your daughters. This subject is pregnant with mischief. In the same year, a second edition of the novel bearing Mary Shelley's name was published, followed in 1831 by the first popular one-volume edition, with a new preface by Shelley and several revisions. These alterations are the source of further controversy among Shelley scholars and teachers of Frankenstein, as they downplay some of the first edition's more radical and provocative elements. Victor's love interest, Elizabeth, is no longer described as his cousin, and as Dr Siv Janssen writes, the relative healthiness of the family in the 1831 version might have been meant to remove any suggestion that the aristocracy were diseased or degenerative. The later edition reflected the novel's fame. For the first time, the word presumption is spoken by Victor in an apparent reference to the stage adaptation Mary had been to see. Victor also makes his sorry life story explicitly instructional, saying to the ambitious Robert Walton, Unhappy man, do you share my madness? Have you drank also of the intoxicating draught? Hear me, let me reveal my tale, and you will dash the cup from your lips." Most modern editions follow the 1831 text, although the first edition's double centenary in 2018 saw a renewed effort to promote the novel in its original form.
1: Shelley's work is full of these imperfect father figures. Mother figures, there's a little bit more nuance within, but certainly there's there's a huge number of either absent or overly problematically involved in their, their children's lives father figures. And, you know, even Walton, the sea captain, talks about how um, he wants to be a seafarer, but his father had, you know, written to his uncle who, who raises him that he can't be allowed to do this. So even from beyond the grave, there's this disapproving parental um, influence on, on Walton, um, the first narrator that we meet. And yeah, absolutely. It's, it's a consistent thing throughout um, Shelley's work. Perhaps the most striking father figure in Shelley's work, is in uh, *Matilda*, where there's um, an incestuous relationship that forms most of the plot of, of the novel. But yeah, there's problematic father figures um, throughout, and and particularly in *Frankenstein*. You know, Victor takes one look at the creature and and, and discards it essentially. Again, I, I know it can be foolish to try and read an author's life into their work. I know Roland Barthes is probably. Rolling in his in his grave at this, um, it's not difficult to imagine that Mary, whose mother died when she was I think ten or thirteen days old, um, and whose father had had a little bit too much control over her life, and then immediately rejected her the second she she stepped out of line um, by running away with Shelley. It, it's not difficult to imagine that that was an influence, and I think she certainly saw. William Godwin's rejection of her as highly hypocritical. You know, she was running away out of wedlock with Shelley, when William Godwin had written a treaty uh, about free love and about um, unmarried love and relationships. And um Mary's mother, had been hugely supportive of that as well. So it, it's not it's not difficult to imagine that these hypocritical or overbearing or absent fathers. In Shelley's work might be influenced by how she's feeling about Godwin.
0: According to Ellen Moores, Frankenstein seems to be distinctly a woman's mythmaking on the subject of birth, precisely because its emphasis is not upon what precedes birth, not upon birth itself, but upon what follows birth, the trauma of the afterbirth. Recounting his labours, Victor describes himself pursuing nature to her hiding places, penetrating her recesses in order to see how she works. His inconceivable achievement is a motherless birth, and as many critics have noted, the absence of a maternal influence is everywhere in Frankenstein. Victor's mother dies while he is at Ingolstadt, leaving him tormented with grief. His future bride Elizabeth is adopted by the Frankensteins after her mother dies in childbirth. Even the Frankenstein's housekeeper, Justine, is taken in by the family because, as Elizabeth says, through a strange perversity, her mother could not endure her. Shelley's own mother died after giving birth, a death Alan Rauch notes was characterised by a violent, fumbling scientific practice. The physicians who attended Mary Wollstonecraft interceded very quickly and worked assiduously to remove the placenta piece by piece. This process, which often disregarded the condition of the patient as a whole, was painful, dangerous, and frequently resulted in severe infections and many deaths. At the age of 17, Mary Shelley herself gave birth prematurely to a daughter, who died days later. Shelley became deeply depressed and recorded her grief and trauma in her journal. Dreamt that my little baby came to life again, that it had only been cold, and that we rubbed it before the fire and it lived Awake and find no baby. I think about the little thing all day, not in good spirits. Ellen Moores comments on this that it is in her journal and her letters that Mary Shelley reveals the workshop of her own creation, where she pieced together the materials for a new species of romantic mythology. They record a horror story of maternity, such as literary biography hardly provides again until Sylvia Plath In the fourth chapter of Frankenstein, or fifth if you're reading the 1831 version, Victor recounts the dreary night of November on which he beheld the accomplishment of his toils. During and after this pivotal scene, his behaviour and language viscerally resemble that of a violent birth, followed by postnatal depression and rejection of the newborn. To begin with, Victor says his anxiousness of mind amounted to a feeling of agony, putting us in mind of the agonies of labour and a brief survey of the ways in which Shelley uses that word, labour, is enough to push the resonance. After days and nights of incredible labour and fatigue, so much time spent in painful labour, a work of inconceivable difficulty and labour, that fatal night, the end of my labours and the beginning of my misfortunes. When the horror begins to dawn on Victor, he asks, how can I describe my emotions at this catastrophe, or how delineate the wretch whom with such infinite pains and care I had endeavoured to form? Here we have a further intimation of childbearing and birth, but also the sense of Victor's rejection being to some degree inexplicable. A mother's rejection of her child is socially inexplicable to outsiders, a strange perversity, as Elizabeth says. Outside as ourselves, we readers are interested in seeing this tireless scientist reap the fruit of his labours, and are therefore confused and perhaps a little disappointed at his rejection. Later, the creature makes this rejection easier for Victor to rationalise by murdering his relatives, but beforehand, the reaction seems abrupt and out of character. Why now, we might reasonably ask, why at the moment of animation and motion, and not the moment of dabbling among the unhallowed damps of the grave? Why not in the dissecting room or the slaughterhouse? Victor is disgusted by the creature's yellow skin and shriveled complexion. With a reanimated corpse in our minds, these descriptors are horrible, but both are quite ordinary when applied to a newborn baby, whose skin often looks shriveled, pruned from the months in utero, and are commonly born covered in vernix, otherwise known as birthing custard, a creamy substance that coats the skin of newborns, leaving them yellowish in appearance. Rather than explain his rejection, Victor remarks on the changeability of human feeling, as he is filled with breathless horror and disgust at the being he has deprived his rest and health to create. He says he was unable to endure the aspect of the creature, a phrase again recalling the mother of Justine, unable to endure her own offspring. After forcing himself to sleep, he dreams of his beloved Elizabeth and embraces her, but in his arms she appears to turn into the corpse of his mother, almost as if unseen powers were reminding him of the fundamental element he has forgotten to include among his instruments of life, namely the female element. Having abandoned his creature, Frankenstein, in a state of exhaustion and extreme weakness, returns to his rooms with Henry Claval. Upon discovering that the creature has fled, Victor's reaction is curious. Instead of panicking or fainting with horror, he can hardly believe that so great a good fortune could have befallen me. this feeling doesn't fade as he recovers. During his convalescence, Victor says he once again becomes a happy creature, without sorrow or care. Before long he is bounding along with Claval, with feelings of unbridled joy and hilarity. It is not until William, Frankenstein's younger brother, is murdered that Victor appears to remember his actions. In the meantime, denial and wishful thinking have conspired to allow him to behave as if those years of labour never happened. It was just an illness that left him cramped and narrowed. Ellen Moore says that here, I think, is where Mary Shelley's book is most interesting, most powerful and most feminine, in the motif of revulsion against newborn life and the drama of guilt, dread and flight surrounding birth and its consequences. In seeking nature out in her hiding places, penetrating what others are happy to call strange perversities, Shelley pushed beyond the romantic cushion between nature and beholder, to lay profane fingers on the unhallowed horrors. In doing so, she transformed, as Murs says, the standard romantic matter of incest, infanticide and patricide, into a phantasmagoria of the nursery.
1: She did dedicate it to William Godwin, her father, when it was published anonymously in 1818. So, although Godwin was very influential, did know an awful lot of writers, was a publisher, so of course knew a lot of writers. She does lay hints in that anonymous edition and Percy Shelley wrote the preface to it, um, I believe anonymously as well. Don't quote me on that. Um, But the preface to, to that was very much in Shelley's writing style and a lot of people assumed that it was by Shelley when when it first came out. In terms of what changed, um, Mary needed the money in 1818 and needed the money that reputation would bring, but she definitely needed it by 1831. I believe you know, she- uh, Shelley would, would have been dead by then. She didn't receive anything from Shelley's father for an incredibly long time because he didn't recognize the legitimacy of their marriage. So I, I imagine finances would have an awful lot to do with putting her name on it because she needed that recognition in order to keep getting writing work. You know, She was a working writer, which was unusual for a woman at the time. I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft, her mother, had, had done it. She perhaps realised by then that her reputation was already controversial in a way that she maybe didn't realise when she was 18, and she was just more prepared to lean into it to use a very modern phrase. Historically, um, I, I don't know whether all that's correct, but certainly those are my gut instincts for why she might have done.
0: The question of how much of Frankenstein Percy Shelley is responsible for has long been debated, despite Mary being unequivocal and precise on the subject. I certainly did not owe the suggestion of one incident, nor scarcely of one train of feeling, to my husband. And yet, but for his incitement, it would never have taken the form in which it was presented to the world. From this declaration, I must accept the preface. As far as I can recollect, it was entirely written by him. This sounds very much like the typical thanking of a spouse found in the acknowledgements of countless books. While they didn't write a word, without them, it is hard to imagine the project being possible. That sort of thing. Although, Percy does sound a little more than benignly encouraging. My husband, Mary writes, was from the first very anxious that I should prove myself worthy of my parentage and enrol myself on the page of fame. As we have seen, writers like Walter Scott assumed Percy Shelley was the author, and the text of Frankenstein does include lines of a poem of his already published, Mutability. However, Percy denied he was the author of Frankenstein, insisting that the text had been consigned to my care by a friend. The manuscript and proofs of Frankenstein show Percy's comments and alterations, correcting Mary's spelling of enigmatic at one point, with the accompanying scrawl, Oh, you pretty pexy. As Michael Rossington has said, the relationship of the Shelleys is one of close intellectual intimacy. They are companions in terms of their reading, in terms of their thinking. The manuscript shows a dialogue in which both parties are willing participants on equal terms. This is a life in which there's a dedication to reading on a daily basis, sharing ideas, constantly in conversation with one another. From studying these manuscripts, it has been calculated that Percy was responsible for roughly 4,000 of the novel's 72,000 words. Anne K. Meller has criticised Percy for being responsible for the stilted, ornate, putatively Ciceronian's prose style about which many students complain. In Meller's view, Percy's changes work against the plain and forcible English that Scott had appreciated. He turns Mary's hot to inflamed, smallness to minuteness, end to extinction, and phrases like, it was safe, become, the danger of infection was past." Percy also weakens the ambiguity of Mary's portrayal of Frankenstein's monster by adding detail. Its hair, with Percy's intervention, becomes lustrous black. Mary's own handwriting in these drafts shows how she humanised her creation as she worked, describing it first as a creature, then later a being, and changing the fangs that Victor imagines around his throat to the more human fingers.
1: There are some changes in the 1831 edition, but certainly people knew Frankenstein by then. It it had been staged theatrically a couple of times by then. It had Uh been quite strongly criticised by various religious figures and um, various authority figures um, by then. So, yeah, it it was certainly known.
0: Oh, that's interesting that it had already been staged.
1: (laughs) I don't believe um, Mary actually saw any royalties from that, but what we do know is that uh, the playbill from one of the first um, stage productions of it didn't name... The creature, it didn't say the creature or Frankenstein's monster or anything like that. It just had um, a series of dashes, um, almost like a scoring out instead of the name. And then it had the actor's name next to it. And Mary loved that because she'd never named the creature. And um, she she writes, I can't remember if it's in her diary or a letter to someone, that she's absolutely thrilled by this. So, Despite the fact that she hasn't had royalties from this stage production, she certainly likes the programme. <laughs>
0: Due in part to the sensational circumstances surrounding the novel's conception, there has been a critical tendency to read characters in Frankenstein as representations of some of the famous persons associated with Shelley. Byron and Percy have both been suggested as role models for Victor, a name which Percy had adopted in his youth. It doesn't help that Mary was, as her biographer Muriel Spark says, reticent about her own work and disliked talking about it. Allusions to her novels in her letters and journals are few, brief and factual. Attempting to source the novel's ideas has led some critics to overstress or simplify the influence of others, particularly that of Percy, who at the time was working on his own Prometheus play, and also that of Mary's father, William Godwin, who in 1799 had written the novel St Leon, in which his titular protagonist discovers the secrets of the Philosopher's Stone. Mario Paz has gone as far as to suggest that all Mary Shelley did was to provide a passive reflection of some of the wild fantasies which were living in the air about her. Absurd and belittling as this comment is, in a way it pays a backhanded compliment to the success of Shelley's synthesis or assembly of these discordant parts. As Richard Holmes has written, Mary's brilliance was to see that these weighty and often alarming ideas could be given highly suggestive, imaginative, an even playful form. The, the main narrator in the novel is Victor Frankenstein, but we begin with these letters from um, a struggling writer, Walton. And th- throughout the book there's these references to, to writing. Um, someone is the author of their own speedy ruin, Frankenstein. Uh, wonders whether he should compose um, uh, a female I think he's given a composing draft at the at the end when he's on his on his kind of last legs there's it, it seems like almost a series of like punning references between creating a creature and, and writing in your view is there is there an element of that kind of drawing a line between giving life to a to a new being and and a kind of written creation
1: yeah I, I think certainly there there are those parallels throughout and It's worth mentioning that Walton, sea captain, who frames the whole thing, is writing to his sister in order to to explain things. It's not just that he's saying, hey, reader, here's what happened. He's also writing as well. There's just layers upon layers of writing and metaphors about writing throughout the book. And that that can't be coincidental. Mary was a very accomplished writer. at that time, a quite inexperienced writer, but she, she was a very good writer, and I don't think it's a coincidence at all. And certainly, I, I, I think it's fair to attribute that as intention.
0: In her generally disdaining survey of Percy Shelley's influence on the novel, Anne K. Mellor says that he introduced all the references to Victor Frankenstein as the author of The Creature, and thus may be largely responsible for recent discussions of Mary Shelley's anxiety of authorship. However, Mary herself makes the connection between authorship and birth in her 1831 preface, famously bidding her hideous progeny go forth and prosper, as well as calling it the offspring of happy days when death and grief were but words. Furthermore, it is not only the word author that encourages this insinuation between physical and imaginative creation. There is the word compose, applied by Victor to the creation of a female, which he subsequently tears to pieces, as if she were made of paper. Charles E. Robinson has written, Victor's assembling of disparate body parts into his monster is not that different from Robert Walton's assembling his discrete notes about Victor into a narrative. And Robinson is not the only reader to have noticed that both Mary Shelley and Walton take nine months to write their narratives. This literary gestation period has led Barbara Johnson to describe Frankenstein as the story of the experience of writing Frankenstein. Walton addresses his letters to his sister, Margaret Walton Saville, who remains silent, reading and perhaps editing her brother's letters, in other words, performing the role of the author she shares initials with, Mary Wollstonecraft Shelley. Like author's immemorial, Frankenstein is greatly enamoured of his idea, but horrified at the first draft he produces from it. The features he selects for his creation were beautiful, he says, but their individual beauty renders them all the more horrible after he animates them. This has a ring of authorial self-reproach. With such fine ideas, how have I created something so terrible? Eventually, the creature confronts his maker, having discovered the story of his own creation in one of Victor's journals. With the relativity of birth and writing in mind, this scene reads like Mary Shelley being reprimanded by her own text. Cursed creator, why did you form a monster so hideous that even you turned from me in disgust? Novels are, after all, another kind of artificial life, born of a single parent and inevitably encoded with characteristics of that author, their talent, their sensibilities, their likeness, their weaknesses, and the marks of what they have borrowed. Frankenstein is composed of the letters and reported testimony of multiple narrators, but it is also strewn with quotations from other writers, Coleridge, Milton, Byron and Percy Shelley. In other words, it recycles parts just as Victor does, in order to form a new whole. But despite the prestige and beauty of those parts, he is missing some vital component that prohibits him from reaching the heights he strives for. As Chris Baldick writes, If Frankenstein is any kind of Faust, he is a Faust without a Mephisto, and if he is a Prometheus, then he is a Prometheus without a Jove. Baldick compares the patchwork quality of Frankenstein's composition to Friedrich Schiller's description of society in the late 18th century, an ingenious mechanism made from the piecing together of innumerable but lifeless parts. And what about sort of literary precedents for for Frankenstein? What kind of stuff was mary shelley reading
1: i'm not actually sure what she was reading in in 1818 um I, she does write quite extensively in her diaries about what she reads sometimes or, or sometimes she will just say got up and fed the baby read." and you're like but what mary what were you reading please <laughs> like your biographers 200 years later need to know please um i can't actually remember what what it is that she's right uh, reading in 1818 but what she certainly is aware of is scientific theories like galvanism, scientific theories around electricity, uh, like the Ben Franklin um, experiments. And you can absolutely see that in Frankenstein. In the 1831 edition, um, more so in the 1818, but in the 1831 edition, Victor describes the visit of the scientist to his family's home, and what's described there is literally galvanist theories. Um, It's less explicit in uh, the uh, 1818 edition. I think there's just something about um, Victor seeing lightning striking a tree and that influencing his theories of electricity. Even that is a reference to galvanism and, and theories about electricity and chemical reactions and, and how the two you know intersect. So she, we know she was aware of that. We know that scientific lectures in middle and upper class families living rooms were big entertainment then, no Netflix. So just invite a local eccentric scientist around to show you what he's he he or she is working on. Probably he then let's face it. Um, and there's a wonderful there's a wonderful book about the science that Mary would have been encountering, mostly on a leisure basis, but you know through things like that. Um, but it's a wonderful book called Making the Monster: the science behind Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, by Catherine Harkup, who is a scientist herself, um, but also writes about science education. And I'd, I'd absolutely recommend it to anyone who wants to know exactly what scientific influences would have contributed to the writing of Frankenstein.
0: When the 15-year-old Victor witnesses an oak tree blasted by lightning, he is boyishly impressed. I never beheld anything so utterly destroyed, he says. The young scientist has found his element and through it the source of his own destruction. Wendy Lesser writes that Victor's surname has no literal meaning. Its two German elements are the verb frank, which, as in English, means to mark as currency, to stamp or prepay, and the noun stein or stone. What Victor Frankenstein does is to give life to a stone-cold object, to take something that has no mortal value and give it currency. He does so, moreover, through the application of an electrical current, a scientific novelty that, when Mary Shelley was growing up, had recently been exploited by Benjamin Franklin. In Percy Shelley's preface to the 1818 edition of Frankenstein, he says that the event on which this fiction is founded has been supposed by Dr Darwin as not of impossible occurrence. This is Erasmus Darwin, who along with the likes of Giovanni Aldini had experimented with animating lifeless matter. After studying the principle of Galvanism, named after his uncle, Aldini famously demonstrated the technique by producing convulsive motions in the corpse of an executed criminal. Erasmus Darwin was rumoured by what Shelley tantalisingly describes as extraordinary means to have induced movement in a piece of vermicelli, pasta preserved in a glass case. However, it seems that Shelley either misheard or misspelled the word vorticella, a microscopic creature Darwin describes as a wheel animal. Victor studies at Ingolstadt, a Bavarian university and birthplace of the anti-Catholic Illuminati. There he learns about natural philosophy drawn by the promise of almost unlimited powers. J. Paul Hunter has said that Shelley is very careful to project Victor Frankenstein's scientific training at Ingolstadt back into the 18th century, repeatedly dating letters 17, so as to place the action of the novel at a time when that university not only still existed, but operated as one of the major European symbols of radical experimental science.
1: Well, I think Mary's very careful to make sure that our sympathies do rest with the monster. Yes, OK, we, we sympathise with Victor and his regrets and remorse and his old death at sea, but Mary is very, very careful to make sure it's the monster that one literally gets the last word but gets as I say the, the the sympathy and she very much encourages her reader to sympathize with this creature that is outside of society that is automatically rejected by society. I would say Victor rejects society, the monster uh, the creature is rejected by society and i I think it's interesting. Shelley herself must have felt quite abandoned by society in 1818. And again, although drawing autobiographical parallels can be a, a twisty road that not everyone wants to go down, I can see a compelling argument for her feeling a lot of personal empathy with the creature. Um, so just to answer your question, absolutely. It's it, it's it's always in, in the literary version of Frankenstein. Let's move, leave uh, the movie adaptations be- behind. And, and, and aside, but it's always the creature in both the 1818 edition and the 1831. It's, it's always the creature that readers sympathise, I, I think, uh, sympathise with, I think.
0: For all its anxieties about not adding up to a cohesive whole, Frankenstein has achieved the status of cultural fable, from which an endless series of interpretations can be derived. Mary Poovey comments that Frankenstein's monster doubles as a woman in patriarchal society forced to be a symbol of and vehicle for someone else's desire, yet exposed and exiled as the deadly essence of passion itself. This is supported by the work of Anne K. Mellor, who remarks that Frankenstein's destruction of the second creature indicates he is afraid of an independent female will. He also fears she will prefer to mate with ordinary males, and implicit here is Frankenstein's horror that given the gigantic strength of the female she would have the power to seize and even rape the male she might choose. He is afraid of her reproductive powers, her capacity to generate an entire race of similar creatures. Richard Holmes suggests that the missing element is not female but spiritual, saying that although galvanised into life by a voltaic spark, the creature has no divine spark from heaven. And Anthony F. Badalamenti reads the book along more autobiographical lines, saying that Mary Shelley was venting her rage at her husband via encoded imagery within her novel. Her relation with Percy was their Frankenstein, he says. The unnamed monster struggles in vain to gain acceptance by man, just as the miscreant part of her relation with Percy struggles in vain to be known to Mary's consciousness. Illustrating how the novel has been politicised and reinterpreted, Jill Lepore writes in The New Yorker that by the 1850s, Frankenstein's monster regularly appeared in American political cartoons as a nearly naked black man, signifying slavery itself, seeking his vengeance upon the nation that created him. In its depiction of an arrogant, grave robbing aristocrat, Frankenstein has also been read as a critique of the widespread practice of body snatching. Shelley had formerly lived near the churchyard of Old St Pancras, a site well known to be visited by resurrection men. As Dr Siv Johnson writes, the Anatomy Act of 1832 would later grant medical practitioners the right to use unclaimed paupers' bodies for their experiments. It provoked enormous anxiety amongst the poverty-stricken who saw themselves as becoming victims of scientific progress. Just since you brought up the films, we talked about the the kind of origin story affecting the 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 legend of Frankenstein, and films sort of done that from the other other side, melding creator and creation, Frankenstein's monster, uh, and Frankenstein. What do you think has made it such a potent fit for um, for for cinema?
1: So I think the the main thing that makes it so compelling on film is the fact that it is a story of contrasts and opposites. You know, man and monster, creator and creation, um, father and son, if you want to to read that into um, Victor and the Creature. And and contrast works so well on film. They they just do visually. um, It's incredibly appealing. But I think the other reason why it's so compelling is because it plays with our expectations. um, And that's something that's really engaging on, on film and, and in literature as well. But visually playing with expectations um, is a really interesting thing to be able to um, do on film. We have ideas of what a monster or a creature is like. And so the book plays with that those expectations. The creature is, is very articulate. Um, I think the other thing that makes it incredibly compelling on for filmmakers and Um, one of the reasons why it's endured is it is very easy to project different ideologies onto it if you want to say oh we should leave science alone then frankenstein's your answer if you want to go oh we should care for outsiders frankenstein's your story you know you can find all sorts of different themes that suit what story you want to tell within it um, whether that's um, a story of inclusion, whether that's um, a warning story. There's an awful lot contained within Frankenstein that can be tapped into.
0: It feels it feels mythic in that sense, doesn't it? It feels like a almost elemental. Absolutely,
1: and there's an almost fairy tale element to it as well. There was um, a quite popular strand of um, fairy tales in. Italy, which um, Shelley did eventually um, uh, live in, there's quite a popular strand of fairy tales in Italy around the 15 and 1600s um, about monstrous children. Um, so a couple will sort of long and long for a child, and eventually, when it's born, it either takes the form of a donkey or a prince or, or something like that. And there's there's something almost fairy tale about this child that is created and you know is Victor's life goal that isn't what he wanted and and becomes rejected and and goes off and has its own adventures, which often happens in those monstrous children stories. There's something really, really ancient feeling about the Frankenstein story, and I think that's maybe why it captures our imagination so well, because it does have those elements of, of early, primal, familiar stories
0: in it. As Jonathan Bate writes, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein begins with the Enlightenment quest to master nature. What follows is the story of nature's revenge, for Victor's presumption in creating life. Not only does this usurp the function of nature, but it is also committing a form of incest. For as George Levine has noted, within the novel, almost all relations have the texture of blood kinship. Percy Shelley's notorious preoccupation with incest is manifest in Mary's work. The model is Eden, where Eve is an actual physical part of Adam, and the monster's situation is caused precisely because he has no blood relations, no kinship. Nature's revenge culminates in the killing of Victor's bride on their wedding night, after which it pursues him, as Anne K. Mellor says, with the very electricity Victor has stolen. Lightning, thunder and rain rage around him. In his despair, Victor charts the story of his improper development. Misfortune tainted my mind and changed its bright visions of extensive usefulness into gloomy and narrow reflections upon self. When he recalls the birth of his scientific dream, which afterwards ruled his destiny, he says, I find it arise like a mountain river from ignoble and almost forgotten sources, but swelling as it proceeded, it became the torrent which, in its course, has swept away all my hopes and joys. He has spent his life among horrors and decomposition, watching how the worm inherits the wonders of the eye and brain, and this eventually has made him insensible to the charms of nature. Tired of natural history, he wishes to mock the invisible world with its own shadows, saying it was very different when the masters of science sought immortality and power. Such views, although futile, were grand, but now the scene has changed. The ambition of the inquirer seemed to limit itself to the annihilation of those visions on which my interest in science was chiefly founded. I was required to exchange chimeras of boundless grandeur for realities of little worth." In her 1831 edition, Shelley stresses that by the end of his story, Frankenstein has learnt to respect nature once again. In The Desolation of the Arctic, he says to Walton, "...were we among the tamer scenes of nature, I might fear to encounter your unbelief. As Mary Poovey has written, Shelley distrusts nature, for far from curbing the imagination, nature simply encourages imaginative speculation. Where romantics like Wordsworth trust the imagination to disarm the natural world of its meaninglessness by projecting human content into it, Mary Shelley's anxiety about the imagination bleeds into the world it invades. In the inhospitable world most graphically depicted in the final setting of Frankenstein, nature is terrifically desolate, frigid and fatal to human beings and human relationships. These fields of ice provide a fit home only for the monster, that incarnation of the imagination's ugly and deadly essence. I guess I, I really want to ask you whether you think it's a, a sort of pessimistic or or optimistic ending or, or story in a, as a, as a whole, because it it seems like on 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 one hand it, is is it gesturing towards a, a new kind of life, a new kind of person, uh, an enlightened person, an outsider of 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 society, um, following the Promethean myths, or is it saying that no, that's completely futile and and look look what will happen? It's just going to end up in in sort of death and despair and I like an end and then the chain will just end the 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 new life will just simply you know disappear.
1: I do think the latter I the creature leaving at the end um, I know some people are like oh it's off to live its own life it's like no I think most people interpret that as the creature intending to go off to end its own life and that was a hugely controversial thing at the time. Uh, Wollstonecraft, um, Mary's mother, did talk positively about um, people's right to control ending their own lives, quite controversially. Uh, so Mary might not have shared her era's view on suicide as a sin as, as much as her contemporaries, but certainly suicide was a hugely controversial topic, still obviously is, And so I I think it's difficult to view the ending and what the ending says in, in a particularly optimistic way. I think Mary does say society isn't ready to be a little bit broader, be a little bit more understanding through Frankenstein. And as I've said a few times already, I know trying to read author autobiography into their fiction is a thorny issue, but... I think certainly in 1818, Mary, rejected by society for doing what Godwin and Wollstonecraft had said was okay, for doing what her parents said was okay, must have felt like society wasn't quite ready for her.
0: And that's all we have time for today. Uh, a huge thank you to my special guest, Emily Ingram. Uh, as I mentioned before, if you want to hear more from Emily about her work as uh, as the artistic director of Some Kind of Theatre and um, her upcoming play based on Mary Shelley, tune in again tomorrow to the extended interview, which will be available in podcast form in all the usual places. In the meantime, thank you all for listening. And until next time, happy reading.